How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. The flower fades and the grass withers, but the word of our God shall abide forever. Before we begin our study this evening, we need to make sure we're in fellowship, ready to concentrate on our study of the Word, to put aside the cares of the day and the temperature in the room, and to, although the heaters finally come on now, we can concentrate a little better on our study. So let's have a few moments of silent prayer for confession if necessary, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word this evening. We thank you for the clarity it presents to us. We thank you that it helps us to understand the issues of life, but above all, it helps us to understand who we are as your creatures, and it helps us to understand all that you have done for us in our salvation and for our spiritual life. Now, as we continue our study of salvation, we pray that you would help us to understand these things. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Now, last time, I started imputation the time before, but last time we covered the lion's share of the doctrine of justification and imputation. Just by way of review, we're looking at the barrier, which is comprised of several bricks. These six bricks, the sin, problem of sin, the problem of the fact of a penalty, see that flows from the fact that God is the ultimate authority. He is the supreme judge of the universe. Therefore, a penalty must be assessed for violating his standard. We keep coming back to that concept. It's so important, especially for understanding imputation and justification, that everything in the universe ultimately is built around this concept of a courtroom. And a courtroom metaphor uh, runs throughout the Scripture. So the fact of our violation of God's standard means a penalty must be assessed. Then we have a problem that is Godward, and that is his character. How can a righteous and just God solve the, uh, or have fellowship, solve the problem of a fallen creature, the problem of our own lack of righteousness, the reality of the penalty, which is spiritual death, and our position in Adam. All of these are different dimensions of the basic sin problem, and they are all resolved by the cross. Now, in unlimited atonement, as we studied, the substitutionary aspect, the unlimited aspect, and atonement itself, the sin problem, is handled. The penalty of sin is resolved by the payment of the price, the payment of the penalty in redemption. The character of God was resolved through propitiation and expiation. And for the last two weeks, we've been studying the resolution, the solution to the problem of minus R, imputation and justification. And as I've said each time, one reason this is difficult for people to grasp today is because we just, are, we, we have, we live in a culture that is psychologized and builds everything around experience and feeling. We have lost a real understanding at a cultural level of legal issues. Recently, I've been reading uh, a book called Founding Brothers about those who the, the founding of the United States, and I've read one or two other books all dealing with the revolutionary period. And one thing that stands out is how clearly the founding fathers of this nation understood the importance of law and the rule of law and that everything had to be developed and argued within the framework of sound, objective law. And that is because they all believed, no matter what else they might have believed, they all believed that in the universe there was a God, a creator, if they were a deist, but they believed that there was an absolute basis for law. There were absolutes in right and wrong. And human law all reflected that. 
If you don't grow up in a culture where you have that concept, that frame of reference of absolutes and of law in that sense, you really can't understand justification very well. It's also interesting that many theologians throughout the years have been also lawyers. Calvin was a lawyer. Darby was a lawyer. Finney was a lawyer. Many others were lawyers. That didn't mean they were always accurate in their theology, but there is a correlation between the two disciplines of theology and law, and they both are built on, at least theoretically, we wonder about that today, but at least theoretically on the existence and realization that there are, are absolutes. Now, as I went over this last time, there were three questions that I've been asked since last Wednesday night, and I want to go back and answer those questions so you understand why I'm making some distinctions that I am making. Now, the first question that I'm going to deal with in order of development here really goes back to how I've divided up the imputations into real imputations and uh, legal imputations. We... Look at the basic meaning of imputation. I'll put this up on the screen for you. The English word imputation derives from the Latin verb imputare, meaning to reckon or to charge something to someone's account. It is an, it is an accounting term. It has to do with numbers and banking and accounting and bookkeeping. And the same can be said about the Greek word logizomai. I took the time to go back and do an extensive search of logizomai, both in terms of its biblical use and its use in extra-biblical literature. It has this sense of assigning or charging a fault or simply crediting something positive to someone's account. It, it does not deal with concrete substances. It has to do with thinking. The root concept in logizomai has to do with thought and reasoning. That's the root idea. Think about the verb there, legizomai. Maybe a noun appears in the mind of some of you that is related to that, such as logos, for the word of God. It's a title of Jesus Christ. It has to do with reason, thought, speech, communication. Logizomai is a verb derived from the logos concept, so it has to do with thought. That means it's an abstract concept, not a concrete concept. You don't come along and say, I'm going to impute the ball into the closet. You will impute an idea to someone. You would impute a fault or charge to someone's account, but you don't impute something solid. You don't impute the kids into the car. There's a difference there. The same can be said about the Hebrew word chashav. Chashav is a, the Hebrew verb that is used for the uh, word impute, and it means to credit, to account, to reckon, to impute. To, it comes from and was used in uh, relationship to bookkeeping, keeping accounting records. The interesting thing is that it came from an original word chabash, which meant to weave. Notice chabash, chashav. They just switched the, the second and third consonants. And it meant to weave, and as such it came to be applied to thinking and the idea of weaving together thoughts to produce new ideas. That's the, that, that's the basic, it's not just, not just thinking in and of itself, you have other words for that, but it's the idea of innovation, of coming up and assigning something new from the result of, of uh, what is already present. Thus the word came to be used to, for planning, devising, making a judgment, meditating, inventing, and accounting. Thus it applies to the overall sense of accounting of, of the accounting of sin, just like a bookkeeper keeps a record of everything that's spent and all the all the credits and all the debits, this concept of accounting is applied in the sense of God keeping the books on mankind, keeping a record of the debits and credits of sin against an individual. So that's how the word comes to be. It's a totally different concept than what we have in terms of putting something into something else. Therefore, some of you have been taught in the past that there were seven imputations. And one of those imputations was the imputation of the soul to the body. Well, I don't 
agree that imputation is a good word to use there because that doesn't fit the concept of reckoning or assigning. Uh, it doesn't fit the abstract concept. That's a concrete thing. So it's better to use the word impart than the word impute when it comes to the soul to the body. Second question that came up, which is a really an important question, I wanted to come back and spend a little more time on it, and that has to do with the definition that I gave for imputation, for the imputation of sin. To impute sin means to impute or assign the guilt of sin, and there's a key word is guilt that I want to focus on. This does uh, not mean in the sense of, of uh, I went on to say, this does not mean the sense of criminal or moral guilt or immorality, but it emphasizes the judicial obligation to satisfy justice. That's what guilt means. It means that justice has been violated, so a person is guilty. Now, we live in an age that's been so psychologized and so influenced by experience and feelings, and most of us have grown up in a culture where you think of guilt in terms of emotion. Think of guilt in terms of guilt feelings. And every time I've taught on this, and I didn't think of it last time, but almost but I was glad the question was raised because every time I've taught on this over 20 years of ministry, somebody always comes up and asks the question, well, what do you mean by guilt? And, and I've had people who just can't get it through their thick heads that I'm not talking about feeling guilty. I mean, this is so much a part of our culture that some people, and they've been made to feel guilty, their parents have manipulated them uh, so much over the years, or they grew up in some sort of religious system that manipulated them through, the, through guilt, that they just have just layers and layers of experience piled on that concept that to think of guilt in an objective sense, as it should be thought of, instead of this subjective feeling sense that, that I, I feel bad about something, uh, it's, it's almost impossible. It takes years for them to, to grapple with that idea. So I was asked the question, what do I mean by guilt? And I want to address that briefly. The concept of guilt is one that's so uh, confusing for people today because our thinking has been so influenced by Freudian psychology and a feeling-oriented society. When most people hear the word guilt, they think of guilt being uh, feeling guilty or guilt feelings. But that concept is completely foreign to the Bible. The Bible never talks about feeling guilty, because when it comes to your sins, God doesn't really is not, God is not concerned about how you feel about your sins. Now we're going to go over a little fun exercise Sunday morning that uh, uh, one of the parents gave me is that his kids had to go through in school, and this thing's so loaded with the word feeling, every other sentence is feeling, 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 that this is just ingrained in us. We're brainwashed with this feeling concept. But guilt has to do with the violation of a standard. It go, it's a legal term, and so we call it real guilt or legal guilt, and it has absolutely nothing to do with feeling guilty. Legal guilt is a concept related to uh, having committed some specified or implied offense, violating some standard, breaking a law, where something is done in violation of some standard. It's not an emotional feeling. You can break a law and not feel bad. You can be guilty legally and not feel guilty. I imagine just about anybody here who's uh, gone over the speed limit in the last few weeks run a stop sign or done something else in traffic, didn't feel a bit guilty about it, yet you are guilty under the law. You have violated a traffic law. A person is guilty because of what they have done or what they have failed to do in relationship to an absolute standard. So the concept of legal guilt has as part of it, as part of the baggage that goes with that word, the concept of an absolute. Now you know why. You know, Satan is a master at attacking the truth by changing vocabulary and attacking vocabulary and just bringing in all kinds of uh, wrong baggage to a word. And that's what we see with this word guilty. You see people who think, well, guilty is, is uh, feeling guilty. But the concept of legal guilt always implies an absolute. You live in a culture that rejects absolutes, then what are you left with? Well, the only reason you know it's right or wrong is because of experience, not because of the existence of some external absolute. 
So legal guilt emphasizes specific designated standards for right and wrong, and when we break those standards, whether we feel like it or not, whether we know we break them or not, whether we know the standards exist or not, you're guilty. Ignorance of the law is no excuse. Just because you don't know God says thou shalt or thou shalt not doesn't mean you're not guilty when you break that uh, divine mandate or divine law. When we break those standards, we're guilty, whether we feel guilty or not. Uh, so feeling is no measure of guilt and no measure of our relationship to God. Only the objective standard of God and the objective standard of the Supreme Court of Heaven can determine legal guilt. Now, we're all born sinners. We possess a sin nature, and to that sin nature is, a, is credited or assigned or imputed Adam's original sin. So every human being is born a violator of God's perfect objective standard, which is his character, his perfect righteousness. At the cross, Christ satisfied God's righteous standard, but every human being is born guilty before God's law. When that little baby is six seconds old, that little baby is guilty. Doesn't feel guilty, doesn't look guilty, hadn't done anything. But because it possesses Adam's a sin nature and Adam's original sin's been imputed to it, that baby is guilty under the Supreme Court of Heaven. Therefore, a penalty is assessed. Now it feels like it's really warming up in here, Ken. So legal guilt is only removed. It's the legal penalty is paid at the cross. That's what happens at the cross. God, God's righteousness imputes to Christ all the sin, that is, all the guilt in human history. Jesus Christ pays the penalty so that there is no more legal guilt. But it is not actually applied until the individual puts his faith alone in Christ alone. And once that happens, the, the guilt is experientially removed. At that point, the individual receives the perfect righteousness of Christ. And at that point, the believer is declared just because he meets the righteous standard of God. Therefore, we say that he is justified by faith alone. So that's the second question, dealing with that concept of guilt. And then the third question has to do with, the. I looked at the various views related to imputation and the imputation of Adam's original sin, which was the first real imputation. And we saw that there were a couple of erroneous solutions suggested in church history, one by Pelagius and one by Arminius, and then two that have been suggested that are both within what is considered the orthodox camp. And by using the term orthodox, I'm using in the sense of biblically correct as opposed to Greek or Russian or Syrian orthodox. Um, the federal view that was set forth among Calvinists and a the seminal view, which actually goes back to Augustine, the federal headship view that Adam is the federal or representative head of the entire human race is held by most Presbyterians and most people who have been influenced by Reformed theology or covenant theology. Uh, the seminal view that uh, man, each human being, is seminally or physically related to Adam and therefore the guilt is passed on physically or seminally, that's held by many Reformed theologians as well as most Lutherans and many Baptists. So at, at both views are considered to be orthodox, and in most seminaries they'll say, well, you need to take a, take a choice between the two. And the position that I explained last week is that, 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 that I take is that they're both true. There's evidence for both in Scripture, and so both are true. They're not inherently contradictory. And the way to resolve the, the problem is to demonstrate that the sin nature is passed down physically or seminally, and then the uh, Adam, as our federal head, has his original sin, the guilt of Adam's original sin, assigned or imputed to each uh, each infant at birth to the uh, home of the uh, sin nature. So that answers my, the question of which am I. I'm not choosing one, uh, federal headship or seminalism, but both are true in some sense. So we looked at the first real imputation, which was Adam's original sin to the sin nature at birth. 
We looked at the first judicial imputation, which is the imputation of our personal sins to Christ. We looked at the second judicial imputation, that was point number eight, and that is of Christ's righteousness to man. Now, we diagrammed it this way. We have the perfect righteousness and justice of God, and then down below in the square we have every fallen human being who is born minus R. We are all unclean. Key word, I want you to remember that word unclean when we get to regeneration later on this evening. And all our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment. So at the cross... Our sins are poured out on Jesus Christ, who is perfectly righteous, because he is impeccable. He is uh, able to be our substitute. He is qualified to be our substitute. And when we put our faith alone in Christ, his perfect righteousness is assigned to us. Because we now possess the perfect righteousness of Christ, we are declared righteous. Now, when God blesses us, this is where we ended last time, blessing accrues to us not because of what we do in terms of our experience, not because I tithe, not because I uh, give, not because I witness, not because I read my Bible, not because I apply doctrine today. Look, Lord, I apply doctrine three times today. Why don't you bless me? See, that's that's what legalism is, that blessing is somehow tied in a cause-effect relationship to what we do. Blessing comes because, not because of what we do, because that still flows from a sinner, but because of our perfect righteousness in Christ. It is that perfect righteousness we possess from imputation that is being blessed. And so all the blessings that God gives us are ours from, from the instant of salvation. They're just not distributed unless we grow to maturity so that we can have the capacity to enjoy and properly use those blessings. No maturity, no blessing, and I don't uh, mean that in in necessarily... Blessing is not necessarily something that is financial or physical or material. Now, remember that because I want to wrap up our study of justification by looking at two passages in the Scriptures. So open your Bibles with me to... Romans chapter 4. Romans chapter 4. There are two great illustrations in the Scripture of justification, and the first is Abraham. This is actually point 10 in your notes on imputation and justification. Point 9 was the result is that man is declared righteous. He's not made righteous. And then point 10 is the model of Abraham in Romans 4. And Genesis 15:6, Romans 4 and Genesis 15:6. Now I'm not going to do a detailed exegesis of Romans 4. I just want to hit the high points so you get the flow of thought here. It's very important. In Romans chapter 3, the Apostle Paul has just been talking about the righteousness. Of God, So that is his starting point. This is the Greek word dikaiosune, which is, has the same root as justification. Justification is from the root dikaiao, and it's that root d-i-k-e, decay, that is at the core of all of our concepts of righteousness and, and justice. Let's pick up the context. Go back to about Romans 3.21. But now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Christ to all and on all who believe. So that is your first indication of imputation in verse 22. That righteousness, the righteousness of God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe, for there is no difference. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Being justified freely by His grace through redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So when we go back and we look at our chart, let me see if I can find it this way. If we go back and look at our chart, Notice how we have redemption as the second brick in the solution. Redemption is the second brick in the solution, and imputation is two bricks higher. Because 
logically, redemption precedes imputation and justification. Jesus can pay the penalty for the sin of every single person in human history, but that doesn't mean it's necessarily applied to every person. That's why you can have unlimited atonement, unlimited redemption, and unlimited propitiation, but you only have limited imputation and limited justification because imputation and justification are based on those who have faith in Jesus Christ, verse 22. We are justified freely by His grace through redemption. So redemption is foundational. You have to have the sin penalty paid before you can truly uh, uh, have justification. Through redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation by His blood, through faith to demonstrate his righteousness. So Christ demonstrates, and the crucifixion is a demonstration of God's righteousness that his standard has to be satisfied before he can save man. That's why I have those three uh, doctrines at the, at the foundation there. Atonement, redemption, and propitiation must lay the groundwork for application Solutions, which are imputation and justification, redemption, and being placed in Christ. Verse 26, to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness, that he might be just, and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So he is demonstrating his righteousness in time in order to maintain his justice. That's what it means when it says that he might be just. He does not relinquish his absolute standard. He doesn't change things. He doesn't back off of the of his justice in any way in order to save people. But he has satisfied his justice completely. Now, verse 27, where is boasting then? It is excluded. Boasting is excluded because boasting puts some emphasis at some level on the one who is being saved, on the creature. Whereas boasting then, it's excluded. Why? Because Christ did everything. You can't add anything to it. Boasting is excluded by what law of works? No, but by the law of faith. Therefore, we conclude that a man is justified apart from the deeds of the law. That is the classic doctrine that Martin Luther staked his ground on at the Reformation. When Martin Luther was a young Augustinian monk, notice we studied Augustinianism. See, that's he was an Augustinian monk in the order of the Augustinians as a Roman Catholic, and therefore that's where he picked up the idea of seminalism. That's why when I taught on seminalism, I said most Lutherans are seminal, seminalists. They believe that everything's transferred physically uh, through procreation. But Martin Luther read through Galatians, he read through Romans, and he had tremendous trouble with the fact that um, uh, the Roman Catholic Church was selling indulgences. And, and, and a man named uh, Tetzel would come into ta- go from town to town, village to village, and he would, would sell indulgences. And if people paid a certain amount of money, then that meant that their loved one, their departed loved one, would be released from purgatory, could go into heaven. And uh, oh, there was a little, did, let me see if I can remember, a little ditty that went along with it. For every time a, a penny rings, a uh, soul from purgatory sings, or something like that. But it was, uh, that he was just, Luther was just incensed over this idea that as these poor people were putting all of their money into buying indulgences, and the money from that was going to build St. Peter's, so Next time you're in Rome or you see a picture of St. Peter's or their uh, St. Peter's Cathedral in Rome or you're, they're re-electing a pope, which may happen soon, and you see that, remember that that building, that cathedral was built with the money from poor people who were contributing the money to the church so that they could get their loved ones out of purgatory. So Luther was incensed over the whole concept, and as he read Romans, he read Galatians, he realized that justification was not based on merit, but it was based on faith alone in Christ alone. So he took his stand on the doctrine of justification by faith alone. When he was arrested uh, and taken off to a trial at Worms, at the uh, Council of Worms, he uh, 
stated there, uh, he put the Bible down after they were going to convict him. He put his Bible down and said, this is where I take my stand. I can do no other. And that's an extremely significant statement in church history and the foundation of the Protestant Reformation. Justification by faith alone right here in Romans 4.28. Therefore, we conclude that a man is justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law. And then Paul goes on to talk about God. Is, is he God of the Jews only? No. Is he not also the God of the Gentiles? Yes, of the Gentiles also. Since there is one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith, do we then make void the law through faith? So now he's going to apply this doctrine of justification by faith alone, in Christ alone, to both Jew and Gentile, and he goes to Abraham as the illustration. Now, all that I've said so far is just an introduction to chapter 4. What then shall we say that Abraham, our father, has found according to the flesh? Now, he goes to Abraham before Abraham was circumcised. That occurs in Genesis chapter 17, when the Abrahamic covenant is officially uh, cut between God and Abraham, and circumcision is the sign that that, that covenant has been laid between uh, God and Abraham. What shall we say that Abraham our father has found according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. Notice, Paul clearly recognizes that if Abraham is a good man and has morality and follows uh, the mandates of God, he does have something to boast about, but not before God. He is justified before man, but not before God. Hold your place here and turn with me to James chapter 2. Now we will come back and look at James chapter 2 in our study of salvation, but we're not going to do the extensive study of James 2 this evening. James 2, starting in verse 14 down through 25, is one of the most controversial passages in Christendom dealing with the relationship of faith to works. And as I taught when we went through James several years ago, this is not a passage dealing with phase one salvation. This is a passage that is addressing the value of your salvation now that you're saved. Your faith, that is, your trust in God, your trust in the Word, what value is that after you're saved if you're not applying it? That's the whole concept here. And then James uses two illustrations. Illustration number one comes from Abraham in verse 21. He's illustrating a point, verse 20. Do you want to know, O foolish man, that faith without works is dead? That's his principle. Faith, that is, as a, as a growing believer, faith without works, and by works he means application, is dead. That means it doesn't produce anything. Faith without works is dead. Wasn't Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac, his son, on the altar? See, you'll always get somebody who will come along and see Paul and James had a contradiction here. See, in Romans 4, Abraham is justified by faith, but, but James has him justified by, by works. Now, you have to give the, the writers of Scripture just a little credit that they had some idea of what they were writing and what had been written. And the compilers of Scripture, uh, a little, little um, credit that they understood that these were not contradictions. You know, the liberals come along and act like everybody who wrote anything in the Bible had a room temperature IQ. Makes you wonder about liberals. What James is illustrating is that after salvation, Abraham is still operating on faith, and it demonstrates validity to his salvation, and it brings blessing in his spiritual advance. And so he goes to an event in Genesis chapter 22 in order to talk about his justification. And the justification there is not a justification before God, but a visible expression of his justification before man. So that fits with what is being said in chapter 4 of Romans. You can turn back to Romans now. That there is a justification by works, but it is not related to eternal salvation. It's not re re related to your eternal life. It is related to the ongoing testimony of the believer before angels and before men and doesn't have anything to do with your qualification to enter into heaven.
So in verse 2, Paul says, For if Abraham was justified by works, then he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Now, I'm reading from the New King James Version, and the word there translated accounted is legizomai, and is the word imputed. That's what was in the King James Version. Abraham believed God, and it was imputed to him for righteousness. Now, hold your place there at verse 3, and look down toward the end of the chapter at verse 22. At verse 22, Paul says, And therefore it was accounted to him for righteousness. It was imputed to him for righteousness. Verse 22 repeats the concluding clause of Genesis 15:6, which is quoted in 4.3 and in 4.22. And that tells you that everything between 4.3 and 4.22 is going to be a development of what happens in Genesis chapter 15.6. And how that applies to understanding justification by faith. Now, verse 4 states, Now to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but debt. Now, he just got through emphasizing grace in chapter 3, so he is excluding works once again with Abraham. Now, in verse 5 he says, But to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is imputed once again. Uh, New King James translates it accounted, but it's still legizomai. His faith is imputed as righteousness. And then he gives an illustration from David and a quote from Psalm 32, 1 and 2 related to imputation. Then he comes back to Abraham again in verse 9. Does this blessedness then come on the circumcised only? Is this only for you Jews? No, but the uncircumcised also. For we say that faith was imputed to Abraham for righteousness. How then was it imputed while he was circumcised or uncircumcised? Not while circumcised, but while uncircumcised. In other words, this happens before Abraham is even circumcised, before the Abrahamic covenant is even given. Now let's hold your place here and go back to Genesis chapter 15, verse 6, because we have to make sure we understand how that verse fits into the context of Genesis 15. Because a lot of people misread this passage in its historical context. To understand the historical context, let's look at the life of Abraham, and we'll just do it chapter by chapter. Abraham is called by God to get out of his country in Genesis chapter 1, and God makes certain unconditional promises to Abram in Genesis 12, 1 through 3. Is Abram saved, born again at that time? Is he justified at that time? Yes, he is. God does not bless anybody unless they possess righteousness. In the Old Testament, it was a provisional imputation. But God doesn't bless someone unless they possess perfect righteousness. Remember, the righteousness of God is the absolute standard of God's character. The justice of God is the application of that standard. So here's the righteousness of God, and here's the justice of God. Righteousness is the standard. Justice is the application of the standard. Now, what the righteousness of God rejects, the justice of God condemns. So if the righteousness of God is looking at old sinful Abraham here before he's saved, then justice has to condemn him. It cannot bless him. Righteousness can only bless righteousness. So what the righteousness of God approves, the justice of God blesses. Therefore, Abraham has to possess plus R or God can't bless him. 
So God's blessing, the expression of divine blessing in the Abrahamic covenant of Genesis 12, 1 through 3, clearly indicates that in Genesis 12, Abraham is already a believer. Now let's just, we can clearly substantiate that through all the things that happen in Genesis 12 and following. Abram flees down to Egypt to try to sustain himself in the midst of a famine, gets in trouble the second part of the chapter, and God has to deal with him. Then when we get over into Genesis chapter 13, uh, we have an episode where there's the division between Abraham and Lot and Abram's followers and Lot's followers and Lot and his uh, family move down into the uh, cities along the Dead Sea uh, along the pla- and along the plain of the Jordan, which eventually gets destroyed. And God makes a promise to Abram in verse 14, Lift your eyes now and look from the place where you are, northward, southward, eastward, and westward, For all the land which you see I give to you and your descendants forever. Abraham is a believer. He's a born-again believer in Genesis 13. Genesis 14, we have Lot's captivity and, and rescue, and we have, at the conclusion of that chapter, Abram is giving tithes to Melchizedek. In chapter 15, we have a restatement of the Abrahamic covenant. Verse 1 The Lord says to Abram, Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your exceeding great reward. And Abram clearly recognizes God's sovereignty, and God restates the promise that his descendants shall be without number. Genesis 16, we have Sarah's attempt to solve the problem of an heir through the flesh, and she talks her husband into taking Hagar as a concubine and having a child through Hagar. And then in Genesis chapter 17, we have the sign of the covenant. Now, in Genesis 15, 6 then, where we've already had clear indication that God is blessing Abraham and that Abraham is saved, God makes this promise to Abram. He says, uh, Abram, he promises Abram that he will be his shield and exceedingly great reward in verse 1 and verse 2. But Abram said, Lord God, what will you give me, seeing I go childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus? Then Abram said, Look, you have given me no offspring. Indeed, one, one born in my house is my heir. In other words, he's saying, he's saying, You've given me no offspring, Lord, but surely, look, here's Eliezer, my servant. I'll just adopt him, and he'll be my heir. See, man's always trying to short-circuit God's uh, ability to solve the problem. Verse 4, And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, This one shall not be your heir, but one who shall come from your own body shall be your heir. Then he brought him outside, that is, the Lord brought him, Abram, outside, and said, Look now toward heaven and count the stars, if you are able to number them. And he said to them, So shall your descendants be. Then verse 6 says, And he believed in the Lord, and he accounted it to him for righteousness. Now, verses 1 through 5 are talking about God's granting blessing to Abraham in terms of what will be expressed clearly in the covenant structure of Genesis 17 as the Abrahamic covenant. And then we have this statement, And he believed in the Lord, and he accounted it to him for righteousness. It sounds like it's in Genesis 15:6 that Abraham finally believes the Lord. But Abraham has been believing the Lord all along. What, hap- what we have to recognize is that you don't have certain kinds of punctuation in the original languages, such, such as in English what we would do is we would put a parenthesis around verse 6. And the writer Moses is saying, remember Moses is on the plains of Moab with the children of Israel before they go into the land of Israel. And he is writing Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy in order to give them a give the foundation to the nation and answer the question, why has God chosen us? And Genesis it lays the foundation. You have 11 chapters that give the reason, just the foundation, a very short, cursory foundation as to why God is going to call Abraham in Genesis chapter 12 and call out a special people for himself. And then the rest of Genesis, from Genesis 12 through Genesis 50, 47 chapters, or excuse me, 48 chapters in 
in Genesis are dedicated to Abraham, to four people, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. Now, Moses is writing, and Moses makes these little editorial comments throughout Genesis, where after he goes through an episode, he addresses the Jews who are reading this. And so he has just explained the blessing of God on Abraham, and he stops, and he turns to them, and he says, Now remember, Abraham had believed in the Lord, and the Lord had imputed that to him for righteousness. See, he's reminding them that the blessing on Abraham is not due to Abraham's good deeds or Abraham's righteousness, but it goes all the way back to the fact that before Genesis 12, when we're not told exactly when, Abraham had trusted in the Lord for his salvation and had received the imputation of righteousness and had been, that righteousness had been imputed to him and that's the basis for Abraham, for blessing on Abraham. So the perfect tense of the Hebrew verb for believe here in verse 6 can take us back to a previous time. And so it should be translated, and you can make a note of this in your Bibles, he had already believed in the Lord, and he accounted it or he imputed it to him for righteousness. So that is the model of Abraham for understanding Understanding imputation. Now let's turn back to to Romans chapter 4 to just wrap that up very quickly. Abraham had believed God and it was imputed to him for righteousness. And this occurs before the sign of circumcision, which is Genesis 17, before the Abrahamic covenant is officially put into effect in Genesis chapter 17. And so Abraham's argu- I mean uh, Paul's argument in Romans 4 is since Abraham's justification preceded his circumcision, preceded the giving of the uh, unconditional covenant, it occurs before God calls him out and distinguishes him as a Jew. It is not till he's circumcised that he's no longer a Gentile and and he becomes a Jew. It is before that that he is justified. Therefore, justification by faith alone is going to be the same for Jew and Gentile. That's, that's in a nutshell, what Paul is arguing and his line of reasoning in Romans chapter 4. Now, there's one other great picture of justification in the Old Testament, and that's in Zechariah chapter 3. This, this is, Zechariah was written after the Babylonian captivity. In Zechariah 3, we see this is not Joshua of the book fame, Joshua the general. This is Joshua the high priest, who is a high priest under Zerubbabel after the Jews returned from the Babylonian captivity. And here we see a tremendous picture and image of justification. And Zechariah 3.1, we're told, Then he, that is the angel, showed me, and this is a vision that Zechariah has, Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of Yahweh, the angel of the Lord who is the second person of the Trinity, and Satan standing at his right hand to oppose him. So you have uh, the angel of the Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ on one hand, on uh Joshua's left, you have Satan on his right, Satan who is the great accuser. Once again, it is a courtroom scenario. So we have to keep that in mind, that this is a picture of a courtroom. And notice you have two different divine personages in this. these two verses, a little indication of the Trinity in the Old Testament. You have the angel of the Lord in Zechariah 3.1. And you have the Lord in Zechariah 3.2. The Lord in Zechariah 3.2 uh, is that begins speaking, and the Lord said to Satan, that Lord is Jesus Christ. Says to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. Now, when when the Lord speaks and he refers to the Lord, he's not talking about himself in the third person. 
It is the defense attorney, Jesus Christ, the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ, serving as the defense attorney for Joshua the high priest, who calls upon the Lord, that is God, as the as the supreme court of heaven, calling upon him to rebuke Satan. So the Lord rebuke you, Satan, the Lord who has chosen Jerusalem, this is God the Father, who has chosen Jerusalem, rebuke you, is this not a brand, referring to Joshua, is this not a brand plucked from the fire? That statement has gone down through church history as an image of believers who are saved, that we are brands plucked from the fire, that our destiny is eternal condemnation in the lake of fire, and each one of us, because of our faith, or on the basis of our faith alone in Christ alone, is plucked from the fire. Then we're told in verse 3, Now Joshua was clothed with filthy garments, that is, the sinner before salvation, clothed with his own filthy garment righteousness, and was standing before the angel. And then in verse 4, Then he answered and spoke to those who stood before him, saying, This is the God the Father, is the supreme uh, judge in the supreme court of heaven. He answered and spoke to those who stood before him, saying, Take away the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, See, I have removed your iniquity from you, and I will clothe you with rich robes. This is the picture of justification in the Old Testament. It is a picture of being clothed. Underneath he's still the same rotten sinner, but he is being clothed with rich robes, and you... And in the same way, we are clothed with Christ's righteousness, so it is not our righteousness, but Christ's righteousness that is the issue. Verse 5, Therefore, and I said, let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head, and they put clothes on him, and the angel of the Lord stood by. So it is these two passages, if you're going to teach justification, of course, you can also go to Galatians 2.16, that it is the model of Abraham from the Old Testament. Go to go to Galatia, or go to Genesis fifteen sixteen, and Zechariah three in order to teach uh, justification. Now that brings us to our next doctrine in the barrier, and it's about the. We've got just a few minutes left, so we'll quit a little early this evening because I don't want to begin regeneration. We'll get about as far as the second point, which is a definition, and that'll just barely be enough to whet our appetite. So I won't tease you with that this evening. We'll just close early and get into regeneration next time with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we do thank you for this opportunity to study your word and come to a greater understanding and appreciation of all that you have done for us in justifying us. That is not, it is not based on who we are or what we have done. It is not based on our works. It is based exclusively on what Jesus Christ did on the cross and on his perfect righteousness that is imputed to us. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this evening, that does not understand these things, that you would make that clear to them. That the issue is not what we've done, what we haven't done. The issue is not our our church attendance, church involvement, good deeds, morality, uh, ritual observance, or any other human factor. It is solely what Jesus Christ did on the cross. And the only way to be justified is by faith alone in Christ alone, trusting in him exclusively. Father, we pray that you would challenge us with the things that we have studied. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.